Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Andrew Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Franny Choi about her book, Soft Science. Franny is the author of two poetry collections, Soft Science from Alice James Books and Floating Brilliant Gone from Right Bloody Publishing, as well as a chapbook, Death by Sex Machine from Sibling Rivalry Press. She is a Kundiman Fellow, a 2019 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellow, and a graduate of the University of Michigan's Helen Zell Writers Program. She is currently a Gaius Charles Bolin Fellow at Williams College and co-hosts the podcast Verses alongside fellow Dark Noise Collective member Dan Smith. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get to chat. It is my pleasure. Um, so I generally like to start off by um, getting to know kind of the background a little bit. So could you talk about how you first started connecting with poetry? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have been writing poems since I was a kid. Um, but you know, the, the, the way that I usually tell it is that as a, as a kid, I, you know, like a lot of kids, um, loved just the game of putting words next to each other and, um, the ways that they sounded. Um, and then like a lot of adolescents as an adolescent, I, um, started to turn back to creative writing as a way of, kind of processing my own experiences and, um, you know, uh, a sort of escaping from the scary world of middle and high school. Um, and then it was in, so, so, so writing in, in, at that time was a very kind of like private thing for me. It wasn't until I went to college and found a spoken word poetry student group on campus, um, in addition to taking classes in their very strange or not strange, but deeply uh, avant-garde literary arts department. Um, but it was my involvement with the uh, a community of students who are um, engaging in poetry as well as the performance of poetry. And that was when I really started to understand writing as a way of not just sort of hiding from the world, but, um, but interacting with it as a sort of, as like a safe avenue with which I could be part of a world that included other people. So, um, so I like to say that all, all three of those reasons that I initially turned to poetry are still, um, the reasons that I continue to go back to the page. So, um, the game of putting words next to each other, the, um, private space in which to process my own life and also a a way to, to interact with the world. Yeah. Um, so how did you get from like these initial explorations of poetry to kind of starting to pursue it through school and like wanting to publish? Sure. Yeah. I, so as I said, I took classes as an undergrad um, at, at um, Brown where I went to school, but I think that actually it was, it was less that that made me feel able to understand myself as not just like a student who wrote poetry, but as a poet. Um, and it was more the other world that I was engaging in, the world of of students who were collaborating and putting work into the world and watching the way that it affected other people and um, and and kind of like coming up with new ideas for how art might exist in a larger community. Like that was the space that made me start to think of myself as, um, as an artist, as a writer. So yeah, in that space, um, while I was an undergrad, I, I, um, started to publish, you know, little things here and there, uh, in journals like campus journals, and then also outside of school. Um, and, uh, went to the first, 
poetry slams um, that I'd ever been to that took place outside of my little um, community and my little bubble um, and kind of broached the larger world outside of my, my little local world. So, yeah. So I think through, through that, through, through that space, like that larger, that sense of like a larger national community of people who were my peers or could be my peers in writing. Uh, and then also being more involved in, in the local Providence um, community of writers and artists that, that I think was really what, um, what started to help me see myself as, yeah, like, like um, branch out of just like, just like, uh, yeah, like branch into um, pr- pursuing it professionally. Um, I also, so the, the year after I graduated um, from undergrad, I, uh, a few friends and I uh, formed the Dark Noise Collective. Um, so that was in 2012 that we first gathered together in our friend's apartment in Chicago. And since then, we've been meeting for retreats like twice a year um, and talking really regularly and sharing work really regularly. And that initially was a space where we were sort of like, okay, we are, we have kind of like moved out of these writing communities that have been so critical to us for, you know, fostering our artistic lives. And in the absence of that, what should we do? Um, And so it was sort of like an experiment in trying to form um, a little cluster of a community um, and, and share resources among each other to try to figure out how to navigate the larger literary world, um, you know, as like 23 year olds or whatever. Uh, And, and, you know, in, in the years of, of us gathering together and pooling those resources and sharing knowledge and um, exchanging work, I, I think that it's been that, that I think is maybe the thing that has most, is like most responsible for all of the moves that I've made in the literary world post, you know, 2011. Great. Um, how do you think your writing has evolved um, over the years, like through your first book and into where you are now? Oh, yeah. God, it's so weird to look back at that first book. I mean, 2014 wasn't really that long ago. So my first book came out in 2014. And, um, but you know, I was, uh, I was, I was really, I was really young. Um, I was 20, 25 or something, 24. Um, and yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's very strange to look back now. Recently I had a colleague who, um, taught that class in, um, an Asian American slash gender studies class, um, at Williams. And, and I was sort of like briefly horrified, um, looking back at it being like, Oh my God, like you're teaching that book. Like, ah, but, um, but anyway, I, I think that, that the work, I mean, the soft science, um, uh, is sort of my like post MFA book, you know? And, uh, I think what that means is that I think that there's a, a lot more of an interest in, uh, received forms and engaging in received forms as well as like a continued interested interest in um, inventing forms. I think that there's that there's somewhat more of like a I don't want to say a technical engagement as like a thing that uh, that is like necessarily indicates that something has like evolved or like is better. But I think that there there's a you know there is that. I think that mas- mainly what it is is that. The first book was me in a lot of ways really like going with instinct, you know, Um, and sort of like mostly just imagining what what a person on the other side of that book might experience. And I think that my second book is has a little bit more is making some more intentional technical choices um, that are that are sort of like trying to not just like purely communicate, but like anticipate responses and, and like in anticipation, maybe sometimes challenge those, those readings. Yeah. I think it's main, mainly those, the, the two books are engaging in different kinds of difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's interesting. So um, let's talk about soft science. How did this particular book come into being? Like, where did it, what's, what was its genesis? Well, the origin story for the book is essentially that I was like, in the years after my first book came out, doing the thing where you search around for, you know, what's going to be the next thing that kind of like forms the shape of your obsessions over the next few years. And um, I had been writing all of these poems that were kind of continuing some thoughts that came out of the first book that are were about like the ways that race and gender and histories of violence shaped my experiences of intimacy. Um, and uh, also like where in that I could, Im- using the language, imagine something new. Um, so the poem, poems like Beg and um, and Oh Bright Star of Disaster I've Been Lit, uh, which are in this book, are some of the earlier poems where I was trying to figure out how to how to do that and, and kind of like um, hitting on something that felt a little new to me. Um, but they were very much, you know, about my own experience. Um, they were pretty autobiographical. Not but, but and. And then I saw the movie Ex Machina, which came out, I think, in 2015, 2016. Um, and for, you know, anybody who has seen that movie, um, it you know that it's about, um, that there's a, a character in it um, named Kyoko, who is, I guess this is a spoiler alert, but, it, you know, it's been years, so maybe um, I'll, hopefully I'll be excused for it. But she's a robot, um, it turns out, and she is... Um, She's she's like uh, languageless. So her maker has stripped her of all of her language abilities. And so um, her functions are essentially to like be inscrutable and mysterious um, to serve the household and then to have sex with the with one of the characters who is the one who made her. Um, And encountering this figure, I I, it was like a light bulb came on and and I was sort of like. Um, you know, it was sort of like an angry light bulb, but it was a light bulb of of being like, oh, this is this is the the image that I didn't realize existed, but that all of my poems have been circling around. Is like this um, Asian woman who has been made into a tool for desire and it is cut off from language, um, and so, but like uses, but you know that that there's like some sort of danger brewing in the silence that surrounds her. And so that sort of sparked a series of poems where I was trying to write in her voice. And then eventually I moved sort of away from that character and more to the series of thoughts and theories that that came out of thinking about her. So yeah, I my friend Denez, who I co-host, uh, co-host this podcast with, often talks about um, the poem that's like the bay leaf poem of a of a book, where like you use it in order to get the like sauce brewing, and then at the end of it, you might like take it out. Um, and I think Kyoko is sort of the is the sort of bay leaf of the of the book for me. You mentioned about Kyoko that she's voiceless and another character that you write about in the series of your poems is um, Chi, who is also very limited in terms of her communication. And I was interested in this aspect of uh, the way your poems kind of reclaim voice um, for these characters and in a way for um, other people in the world who feel like they don't have a voice. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think early in my writing career, I was um, really struck by the concept of being a voice for the voiceless. I think this has to do with, you know, being a young activist kid and wanting to, you know, realizing that um, to have, the ability to write and speak in a way that moved people was a it was a privilege and to the you know a desire to use that privilege for good and it, i think that like not that long after i encountered this concept it started to feel really icky to to speak for want to speak for um people that 
mostly have been called voiceless, but aren't, you know, um, and much more important to, um, to, to try to use whatever privilege I have to highlight those voices rather than speaking for them. So, so, and I think that that makes like, um, for somebody who's, who's like politically minded and a writer and, and is interested in the craft of persona work, it, it, I think it makes for like kind of a difficult space to know how to operate in, you know? So I think that the ways that I've tried to, at least in this book, um, manage that have been to kind of relocate like the voiceless as like a populace in myself. Like what are the parts of, of me that feel unspoken for or like unable to explain themselves through normal language. And yeah, that, that there's, that there's a lot of, there's a lot that's unspeakable within all of us. And I think that for me, I feel like my job as a poet is to try to, um, try to use poetry to navigate that, those spaces. Um, and then also at the same time to, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's like to continue to reimagine who the voiceless is outside of myself as well. Like, you know, like this, this was why, if I was going to speak for the voiceless, I wanted it to be the literally voiceless that I felt like a deep kinship and a deep relationship of solidarity with. So these fictional characters um, that I, that I deeply identified with. Um, and then also, you know, kind of mythical figures like, you know, the capital C cyborg um, uh, that, you know, and, and like a, a voices that are, that are maybe like AI that to try to like imagine those voices into existence and, and kind of like build empathy in, in that way. Very interesting. Your your comment about bringing it to the personal kind of makes me think of the way the personal kind of becomes universal in the way that it can resonate with other people and kind of create that connection without like trying to claim the voice of other people, just being able to speak your own truth. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I think that's exactly, that's exactly right. Like I, I think that, that that's not exactly how empathy happens, at least for me to, I don't know. It, 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 it's not exactly about just stepping into somebody else's skin because it's like their skin, you know, like, um, but I think like that there's, but, and, and yet like, that is what empathy is. Like it is, it is like trying to imagine ourselves in other people's shoes. And so I think what that means is that there, that the, the problem of using creative writing to create empathy with other people that are profoundly different from us is like a problem that hasn't yet been solved. And so we have to keep imagining newer and weirder ways of getting around those problems. Um, And so, and I think that's sort of like what, like the speculative mode is all about. Yeah, it's a fascinating challenge. Yeah. I love the title of your book, Soft Science, um, because of the way, for me, it creates a, that beautiful juxtaposition of soft being, you know, skin and flesh and vulnerability and science being perceived as like kind of hardness and experimentation and metal. And I think that kind of captures some of the tones that kind of work through this book, that softness and hardness at the same time. Could you talk a bit how you decided on the title and a little bit about that juxtaposition? Yeah, of course. Um, thanks for saying that about the title. I, um, I, uh, yeah, I, I think that when, after I kind of landed on it, I started to discover more things about it. Um, but but I think that that it's totally on point what you said about how um, about the softness of flesh and also the softness of like a, a feeling and um, yeah next to next to like the hardness of of metal and logic. Um, but I think it's also about saying this is this book is sort of like a study of 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 softness and that feeling and vulnerability are 
worthy objects of study and also are worthy lenses of study as well, you know? Um, Cause like if we think of the soft sciences as, as things that are, are like sort of like, yeah, like uh, uh, forms of study that aren't necessarily, you know, that aren't, aren't like the hard sciences that aren't like, you know, chemistry and physics, um, but are, are closer to the humanities. Yeah, I think I wanted to say like, okay, like to be closer to the humanities is like, doesn't mean that this kind of inquiry is like any less rigorous or or, or um, reliable as anything else. So there's that. I, I think also, yeah, the um, technological aspects that are kind of hinted to in the title come through also in the craft of the book. And that's, it's not just like the content. It's not just like, this is a book about, you know, feelings and robots, although it is also a book about feelings and robots. But I think that it's also, you know, a book um, that that asks, like, what does it mean to be soft in the realm of craft? And, um, you know, what is it like, what is what's the craft of vulnerability? And also, like, what what is like the the technology of the poem? Um, This is sort of why when I said earlier that like this book is more technically minded um, that that's that I don't think of that as like a sort of like evolution development or like an improvement on, on my craft, but like an intentional choice that I'm making to be like, you know, if, if this is a book about that is thinking about like the intersections between um, gender and intimacy and tech and race and technology, then like the, the poem is really like the, the cyborg figure at, the heart of it, you know, the, that is both trying to be a living, breathing thing somehow and made of tools, um, tools of language. So, yeah. Yeah. You, um, in a couple of different interviews that you've done before, you've talked about like language as a technology and, in um, was it the Paris review? You mentioned cyborg poetics um as something that you were trying to explore and i'm i'm curious about that concept of cyborg poetics and and what that really means to you yeah i'm curious about it too i think i still haven't <laughs> exactly figured it out and i think that this is um this book you know is the is the beginning of my inquiry into it but you know i i, I there's a there's an epigraph by donna haraway um in the book uh for you know, for some good reason, I was have been really influenced by her thoughts on you know, particularly in the Cyborg Manifesto, um, on like what uh, what a cyborg subjectivity would be like, and you know what it means to. Uh, I mean, she she talks in that essay about what it means to like reproduce as a cyborg, which uh, you know she, which is sort of like uh, outside of the the normal modes of cis hetero reproduction. Um, but, uh, you know, f- fractal and cellular and, um, kind of like, uh, yeah, through like copying, you know, asexual reproduction. And, you know, I, as a poet reading that, I read that as like a metaphor for how a cyborg, um, what it means for uh, cyborg creative production, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, she talks in that essay also about like the cyborg being like a, um, an unfaithful daughter, I think is, is something that she says uh, in that, that she, the cyborg um, isn't loyal to the parent of, of, the machine, the machine parent, or like the Garden of Eden, um, that there's no, that both of these origins are unsatisfying and she rejects both of them. And I, I just, I love that concept of being, um, as a writer, clearly descended and, and made by larger forces of history that are often violent, but but not necessarily having to therefore be faithful to those. Um, that, that felt a really crucial opening for me. But, you know, also Donna Haraway as a figure in feminist theory has, you know, is not a perfect figure and has come under a lot of critique. 
in that essay that I draw a lot of inspiration from, she is also speaking for women of color um, and kind of posits that women of color are cyborgs, which is like, as a woman of color, I was like, oh, cool. But then, but then it's sort of like, well, how, you know, what, who are you to, to like um, cast all of these people that, you know, in a category that you don't belong to as this like inhuman, you know, non-human like mythical figure like that's kind of that you know that can be thorny too um which is why so that's like part of the reason that in the epigraph I have her paired with the poet Banu Kapil who seems to be sort of like directly contradicting the thing that she says um so the Donna Haraway quote is uh we are excruciatingly conscious of what it means to have a historically constituted body which is great and then the, the Banu Kapil quote is, the rain is soft, the rain is hard. I don't know anything. Um, and I, I, I wanted to have both of those kinds of knowledge, um, that excruciatingly conscious of history knowledge and the like, I'm living in the material world of feeling and sensation and like what, you know, how, what good does, my, does all of that, that fancy knowledge do world? Um, so yeah, I think so. I think if it's, uh, yeah, I, I, again, I'm still trying to figure out what I mean by cyborg poetics, but um, those are some clues, at least along the way. Yeah. Speaking of cyborgs and robotics and talking about bodies and the way many of the poems in this book discuss what it means to exist in a body in the world, whether it's flesh or mechanical or a combination of both and could you talk a bit about that exploration? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean that's like the question, right? Like how 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 do we talk about the experience of having a body? Um, yeah, God, I don't really know how to how to how to um, approach that question exactly, just because I it's see if it's like um, that that's the kind of like larger question of my work generally um this is like the problem of being a body and among others but i guess i guess i think that like like to to be a queer woman of color to be a queer asian american woman means that in in so many instances or for much of my life like my body is sort of walked into the room and told a story before i could before the rest of me could. And this is like, like a, both a profound problem and like a gift, I think in some ways too, right? Like it's a, it means that I have a body that's marked with history and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it also means that it's been like a site of violence, um, which is a bad thing. And so I think that like the, the book is really trying to say, Given that this is the case, like what, how do I move? Like if I've, if my body has been made into an object of desire and therefore like a site of derision because it's been made into an object of desire, then like, what does it mean to have desire? Like what, you know, what, what sort of terrible and beautiful things could my own Asian American femme exoticized fetishized body like where you know like what 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 new strange and beautiful things could that body lead me to with its own desire so yeah so I think like that that intimacy has the 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 problem of intimacy that started the book kind of goes continues throughout even when this the poems are talking about drones or or about um the targeting of immigrants or about um you know having an allergic reaction um and having to get stabbed by an epipen like there's still uh, it it's that like core of desire i think that moves that always moves me forward and um and helps me find the heart of the poem and where the poem is is heading yeah. I don't know, but again, it's like it this is a it's a huge question 
um, what do you do with the body? And I, and I think that this is that I, I don't, I don't think that I can answer any part of it in full, but, um, I'm hoping that what I'm doing is just like continuing in this book to refine that question, you know? Mm, Yeah. Well, would you like to read one of the poems from the book? Sure. You can read a poem from the book. Let me see what, um, yeah, here we go. So this poem is called Shokushu Gokan for the Cyborg Soul. Um, that term Shokushu Gokan means, um, tentacle porn. It's a Japanese word that means tentacle porn, which is unfortunately, um, what it sounds like. So, uh, Gokan for the Cyborg Soul. When it's demon cephalopod versus schoolgirl, it should be obvious whose eyes to take. Nothing is more frightening than looking and loving what you see. Nothing is sexier than a rumor of shredding you can porn hub with saliva and thirsty nerves. I'm a net teeming with pervy fingers, reaching for anything that will bite me back, any promise of stoppage. A cyborg woman touches herself for three reasons. One, to inspect the machinery for errors. Two, to convince herself she is a mammal. Three, to pull herself apart. Each tentacle of an octopus contains brain matter and a personality. Fun fact, all my children arms want to fuck each other. Okay, so I am both the woman holding the camera and the woman being opened by it. Nothing special about that. I'm only a cuttlefish lying open-jawed under the sand, a squid flashing red as it pulls a fish girl into its beak. I am just trying to sleep, to feed, to fill myself and grow larger from it. Or I am only trying to slither back into my first skin. Or I am only trying to remember how it felt not to leak. Beautiful. Can you talk a bit about this poem in particular and how it came into being? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, um, I think it, it goes back so much to the, to the things that I was saying before about the um, sort of fetishized Asian body and, um, and the sort of like spectacle of violence uh, done to the Asian femme body, which is um like I said, like, yeah, it's both, it's both something that I'm like (laughs) horrified by. And um, what's like even more horrifying probably is, is finding myself, you know, drawn to it and and desiring that, that spectacle as well. Um, To, I, yeah, I, I think this is like the fundamental problem of like, of, of like watching a certain kind of porn is, is, um, is to, is, the, you one ends up um, getting turned on by by like pain inflicted on one's own body, you know. It, it it's uh, or like the image of it or the spectacle of it, you know what I mean. And this is not a new problem, but it's a problem that I was trying to wrestle with in in, in here. Um, the like the confronting the yeah, it's like these this graphic uh, sort of spectacularly horrifying kind of of asian porn so but and i and i think i at the same time it was like i don't know i think that like i wanted to use humor as a kind of guide through it you know like to i i think it's easy to just like get down into the muck of it and like feel disgusting forever or something or feel angry forever and um i think i also want the poems to be pleasurable because so much of it is about pleasure you know so much of the problem is about pleasure so I was hoping um yeah the humor humor allowed me to kind of move through it without just being totally destroyed you know um and then there's also like a that that line the bit that's like um a cyborg woman touches herself for three reasons uh that's borrowed from a poem by uh, my dear friend Nate Marshall uh where in his poem it's um a man carries flowers for three reasons uh, and I think in his, it's like a man carries flowers for three reasons. He is in love. He is in mourning. He is a flower salesman. And yeah, I, lo- I loved that little list and how both expansive it was and how much it like put you into 
three different categories and had to force, you know, because the, the, in that poem, the speaker then says, like, I think it's like, um, I am not a flower salesman. Then that is all I know, you know. So, yeah. So then I, I wanted to ask, like, OK, which of if these are the three reasons that a woman might touch herself, then um, then which am I? And if, is it, you know, how is it might it be possible to be all three? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, something I notice about some of your poems, you can be a little bit experimental in terms of process, as in the cyborg wants to make sure she's heard you right, or in terms of form, as in the opening poem, the glossary of terms. So when you approach the writing of a poem, how do you decide on approaching the process and the form and all those sorts of things? Oh, yeah. I think that sometimes it's like a... I know what I want to write about and then I start casting about for a form, you know, but it's, it's more often that, that like uh, a series of things appears in my life. And then I, I follow, I choose to follow it until at some point, maybe there's a poem that comes from it, you know? Um, so the, the cyborg wants to make sure she heard you right. For anyone listening, it's a poem that, um, that is composed of tweets uh, that were sent that were directed at me um, over a period of a few days. Like I, an, an image of me saying, um, and a quote from me saying um, something uh, ended up on like an alt-right blog um, somehow. And so it, it was like me critiquing the white cis straightness of the publishing industry. And um, because it ended up on this blog, then a bunch of trolls kind of um, came for me on the internet, on Twitter. And I think that, yeah. So, so that, that was where, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't then, you know, look at it and think, oh God, I'm going to like make a poem out of this stuff, like hooray. But it was like the only way that I could, um, that I could stand to engage with those tweets was by putting them into Google translate so that they would like come out really garbled. And then I had a bunch of this, like, you know, sort of like gobbledygook language, and like the, yeah, like the, the, the way that I could like safely approach all of those, the horrible feelings there was, was by, was by manipulating it and, and then like trying to make something out of it. So, yeah, I mean, so I think that it's like less about, um, less about wanting to try to like get really experimental with my poems and more about like looking at the stuff that sort of just like comes my way and, doing whatever my brain like wants to do in order to like approach it safely. Um, and for example, the, the, um, the grid poem that you mentioned uh, earlier that also started as just like, as literally just a chart of me trying to track what these different words meant that I felt, you know, I, I, I knew that I was completely overusing in my poems Um and to try to investigate, like, okay, why why am I using these over and over again? Like, what what is at the heart of these these repeated words? Um, and then from there, in that investigation, started to come out something come something like a um, something that felt like it could on its own be a poem. So, yeah, but I mean, but then there are other times also that like I that experiments in process or form you know, come from, I mean, I, so I guess, I guess that there's, yeah, those are like the two approaches, right? Like sometimes the experiment and process or form comes because there's like a problem and that's like the, the strategy that I've used to solve it. Um, and then other times it's just sort of like, that's what it is. That's what there is. And, and I'm trying to, trying to approach it as, that that material that comes into my life as honestly as possible um and sometimes that means like deeply manipulating it and sometimes it means like trying to trying just like not to get in its way yeah do you tend to edit a lot when you write and how do you get to the point where you feel like a poem is finished oh yeah i don't really know i mean i i do i do edit a lot i um or hmm my friend Sarah says that poetry is like pooping in that sometimes it all, sometimes it all just like it, sometimes it takes a long time and it's very painful. 
And sometimes it all just comes at once. And um, but no matter what, you feel better at the end of it. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, I deeply relate to that. I think sometimes, sometimes a poem arrives fully formed. This is awful because now you'll just connect it back to pooping. But but sometimes the poem arrives like fully formed and knows what she is and knows what her voice is and knows what her momentum and movement is. Um, and then other times it just comes, you know, in like little bits and pieces. And so, so the work is to like, is to gather and cobble and sort and organize. Um, but I think that, that I, I also, I don't know. I, I try, I, uh, the, the times when I know that I've over edited a poem is, are, are when um, something in the momentum has, and the voice has been lost. Um, and so if I if I edit to a point where I can't read it all in one like pleasing go, then I know that I've sort of gone too far. And so there are there are actually poems in this book that when I read them out loud at readings, I read them different. I read like previous versions of them because I've I've realized in you know in touring with this book that like I have that I that I clipped away. Um, something that was actually essential for the voice. So actually, yeah. So that's like part of it as well, that part of my editing process is to read the poems out loud, not just like to myself in my room, although I do that quite a lot as well, but, but with audiences and with, with like people who are, who are close to me. Um, uh, yeah. I learn a lot from, from that process. Would you like to read another poem from the collection? Sure. Yeah, I can do that. Um, okay, so I'll read um, one of the Turing test poems. So the po- the book has um, a bunch of poems that take the form of a Turing test, um, basically questions and answers, um, where like the questioner is essentially trying to determine whether the whether the um, interviewee is a computer or a or a human. Um, so this is the the I guess it's not the last of them, but it's one of the last of them in the book. It's called Turing Test Love. It's just one question and one answer. So, how do you like working with humans? Okay, here are some tips. One, look the human directly in the eye. Imagine it is someone you care deeply for. Imagine it is returning this gaze at you. Try to tell yourself you are covered in smooth skin, a face it can trust. Smile, even as you sense it trying not to blurt out, monster. Two, There are many programming languages. Use whichever you prefer, but stick to your syntax. Though it be muddled, must. Though it be machete, banana slug, slush puppy. Oh, gorgeous slop bucket. If they used it against you, it is yours to make sing. Three. Remember, all humans are cyborgs. All cyborgs are sharp shards of sky wrapped in meat. Be delicate as you approach the subject. Not all humans are ready to call themselves glass stalactites pissing the bed. Remember, they love their blood, even as they retch at the smell of it. Four, do not try to prove your, what is the word, humanity. You are organic, plum-hearted, oyster-throated, and lined, yes, with metal. Remember where all that silicon comes from. For the ocean so loved the quartz, feldspar, the tiny homes of tiny creatures, that she ground them into sand, to keep them close, to kiss them with, well, I suppose you would call it a mouth. That's uh, such a great poem. It's one of my favorites. Oh, thank you. Now that you have your book out there in the world, what would, is it that you would hope that readers get out of your work? Yeah, that is a great question. It's been something that I've been turning over in my head a lot as the book has been out in the world. I think that I think that um, I would love what what I most want is for anybody who's ever been felt like they were turned into an object or a machine, um, or anyone who's ever felt like a vast distance from their body to feel something kind of like recognition in it um in this book just to know that to find some bit of language that you know speaks to their experience and i think that like certainly this book is like 
the, the speaker at the heart and I as the author, you know, we're our, um, Asian American, queer Asian American women, but, but I don't think that it's, I, I don't imagine that like the audience that would relate to it is necessarily a queer Asian American woman. You know, again, I think it's just anybody who's, who, who's been made into an object of desire or work. And I, and I also, I guess I hope that, um, I guess that's like, you know, that's like a certain kind of reader. And I, and I also hope that like there are things in the, in the technology of the poems themselves that open up things for other writers as well, that there are kinds of, you know, bits of thought that might help the next poet think their next thought better. Uh, Yeah. So I think that's, that's the work that I hope it, that it does. I also really hope that I don't know of how many, you know, if, if anybody who like is a computer programmer, like what they, you know, how, how this book relates to their own experience of, of working with, yeah, working with programming and with coding. But I, I guess like, I, I hope that uh, something in here like opens up a thought that they didn't have before. You know what I mean? Like, um, I got a I got a chance to speak to um, a tech company in Portland earlier this spring, just about like the my work as like um, doing work in thinking about the intersections between race and gender and um, and and computer science, um, and it was it, and it was yeah it was really it was really fascinating to to talk to some of those folks, and so I guess I do I hope that I hope that more um, people who are in that world, uh, look at it and find something interesting, you know? So would you like to talk a bit about what you're working on now and what sort of projects you have underway? Sure. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, whenever I finish a project, I, um, I, I frantically search around for the next like five things to become obsessed with. So, so there are a few things on the on the background. So one one is is a, a project that is still very early in the works, which is kind of continuing the thoughts from this book, and uh, it's a project that I'm that uh, I yes. Yeah, so essentially, what it is, it's a text to speech bot, um, a synthetic speech bot using my own voice. Um, again, sort of like this like digging into this voice for the voiceless sort of thing as like a way to think about automation and think about the concept of creative voice. Um, and also my own role in the world of literary publishing as like, um, somebody who continuously gets pin pigeonholed into being a spoken word poet. Um, so, um, I'm trying to basically create a, a program that will, that will use my voice to um, speak for me um, and, and uh, as a way of trying to ask some of those questions. That's a like, very early development. Um, as in, I am still like at the very beginning stages of like what, it, of understanding what it might look like on like a computer on like an engineering level, you know? Um, but uh, so there's, there's that sort of imaginary project. Um, there, the other, and there are two sort of like buckets that poems are falling into these days. So, yeah, so one of the my new poetry, my next poetry projects is um, a manuscript about of poems about um, about Korea and what it means to have for my family to have migrated from a divided country um, and the kind of like inherited generational traumas um, of my family in that migration history. Um, the other is a book of poems that is really just sort of like love poems and an agent of apocalypse. So I don't really have anything, any sort of like theory about that for now, except for it's just love poems at the end of the world. Um, and then there are, there's a, a so last year I got a chance to write a monthly column about, um, about menstruation. Uh, that was basically just like once a month, whenever I got my period, I wrote an essay and then put it on the internet. Um, through the journal Palette Poetry, which was really great. It was really fun and um, a great way of uh, learning how to write 
nonfiction, creative nonfiction, and um, thinking about all of the axes of different kinds of thought that are involved in in this like highly contentious idea of menstruating as like a queer person um, in relationship with with trans people and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, yeah, so I think that I'm I'm continuing to keep like working on on that thinking and um, still writing essays so they're not on the internet. So yeah, so those are those are basically the things that I'm that I'm obsessing over right now. Great. It sounds like you have some fascinating avenues that you're exploring. Oh, yeah. Well, I have, again, I have Scrivener files and notes. <laughs> so, Well, I'm excited to see what comes out of all that. Um, to wrap up, I like to ask if there is something that you're reading or some form of media that you're finding inspiring or that you're loving right now. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I just read the book Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars and uh, was like so deeply moved by it and just had like a great time reading it. Um, I also just watched, uh, there's a, a Netflix original show called Unbelievable that I watched like all in one go. These are, these are the things that I just basically, I most recently like inhaled. Uh, and so, yeah, so those are, I mean, and I think that the, those are, they're both like very much related to the, these, my sort of like creative pursuits, but yeah. And, and uh, as far as poetry goes, um, my partner just read me a poem from the new Tim Donnelly book or the one that came out this past year that, yeah, helps me think about what it means to, what it means to write poems now in this um, current historical political moment. And I'm also thinking a lot about, you know, in, in that, in that same vein, um, thinking a lot about Brenda Shaughnessy's book, The Octopus Museum, a kind of like guide as I keep thinking about an Asian American speculative dystopian poetics. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, where can folks find you online? Yeah, my website is FrannyTroy.com. It's mediumly up to date. Um, but the the podcast that I host is called Verses. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, you can find it on SoundCloud and uh, Apple Podcasts and the Poetry Foundation website. And we interview poets. Um, so hopefully that's a good resource. You know, if you're if you're like, if you like this sort of thing, talking to poets, then um, I recommend that too. Great. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. This was great. Thanks so much for taking the time to think about my work and talk to me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been a great conversation. And thank you to everybody for listening. This is New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Mm-hmm.